Um, today we reach the third act in the book of Ruth, chapter 3. Our story's been building for several weeks, but it's far from over, and today we find ourselves right in the middle. We are right in the thick of it. The story has not reached its conclusion yet. A lot has happened, but a lot is still to come. And as I've prepared um, for today and, and just had this story rumbling around my head in the past couple of weeks, there's a couple of thoughts, two questions really, that just have kept coming back to me. When we're in the middle, as we so often are, what can we do and where is God? When we're in the middle, what can we do and where is God? I'm going to start by reading the whole of chapter 3. It's not massively long, but it's maybe a little bit longer than we're used to. So just to help keep you guys tracking along with me, I've taken some great screenshots from the Bible Project videos, if you've ever watched those. They're really beautifully illustrated. So those will guide us through. So if you get bored listening to me, you can just follow the pictures, if that helps you. So let me read um, the whole of chapter 3 to us. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, I need to seek some security for you, so that it may be well with you. Now here is our kinsman, Boaz, with whose young women you have been working. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now wash and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. She said to her, all that you tell me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had instructed her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and he was in a contented mood, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came quietly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and there, lying at his feet, was a woman. He said to her, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over your servant, for you are next of kin. He said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. This last instance of your loyalty is better than the first. You have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask, for all the assembly of my people know that you are a worthy woman. But now, though it is true that I am a near kinsman, there is another kinsman more closely related than I. Remain this night and in the morning, if he will act as next of kin for you, good, let him do so. If he is not willing to act as next of kin for you, then as the Lord lives, I will act as next of kin for you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before one person could recognize another, for he said, it must not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Then he said, bring the cloak you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her back. Then he went into the city. She came to her mother-in-law, who said, how did things go with you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, He gave me these six measures of barley, for he said, Do not go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Let me pray for us. So God, we invite you to come and be present amongst us. 
and we invite your Holy Spirit to come and speak to our hearts. May we hear your whisper to us this morning. Give us ears to hear. Amen. So at face value, this is a pretty simple story, right? And it's kind of worth saying, as, you, as we've read this chapter maybe particularly, that there's a lot of cultural norms around marriage and possession and men and women that just kind of don't really translate that well to our 21st century Edinburgh. But they were relevant then, and so while I'm never going to endorse women as possessions, I do think it's important not to get tied up in the knots about kind of rejecting these cultural nuances here because they're not really the point. That's not the point of this passage. We can accept it because it was of that time, and we don't have to understand it or agree with it to learn from it. It's a pretty simple story. You have mother and daughter-in-law in a desperate way. They may have some food now. We learned that from chapter two. The famine is over, thank goodness. They're able to eat, but they are far from socially secure and provided for. They know, they are painfully aware of their cultural vulnerability. The mother-in-law, Naomi, has a pretty audacious idea, which is unsurprising really, because people called Naomi tend to be incredibly daring and fearless. I should know. The daughter-in-law, Ruth, that was a pretty cheap joke, wasn't it? I couldn't resist. The daughter-in-law, Naomi, complies. We've seen this throughout, haven't we? They're a team. They always act as a team. She goes to the place where she really should not be and makes a fairly wild request of our rich male protagonist, Boaz. The tension is building. They have a middle-of-the-night conversation. By the end of the chapter, we've come through the arc of our story. Things are starting to come together. They're falling into place. It kind of seems like things might be working out. What a roller coaster. It's pretty simple. But it's also incredibly subtle and nuanced and layered, and we can learn a whole lot from these daring women. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's one of the few instances in scripture where it is the voices of women that are leading us through. Not just their story, but their voices. And so let's listen to them. Ruth is a survival story. Women fighting and striving for survival and security. Maybe we'd love to think that this plan by Naomi was calculated and strategic and well thought out. I don't think it is. I think that this is a story of what people do in really desperate circumstances, clutching at straws. Because without some kind of help and security validated under the law for them, the future for Naomi and Ruth looked incredibly bleak. Yes, technically their customs and traditions and laws did provide for this, but given Naomi's age and given Ruth's ethnicity, it's not guaranteed. And so they have to take matters into their own hands. They are right in the middle of it at this point. There are no guarantees and there are no conclusions just yet. We have the luxury of knowing the end of the story, but they do not. They are acting boldly and bravely because they have no other choice. So to come back to our question that I posed at the beginning, when we're in the middle, when we find ourselves right in the thick of it, what can we do? Well, what did Ruth do? Let's look at that and see what happened as a result. Firstly, Ruth acted 
boldly. Ruth acted boldly. Naomi hatches the plan and Ruth enacts it and it leads her to this incredibly significant place which I think is right at the heart of this story. Verse six, so she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had told her to do. She went to the threshing floor. Why does that matter? Why have I paused there? Well, this story, as we have learned throughout the past few weeks, is full of symbolism. It's full of meaning. And the threshing floor is maybe more significant than we might imagine. It pops up all over the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well. And when we read about it, it often carries with it some kind of crucial spiritual significance. So what could it represent? What's the meaning behind the threshing floor? I think we see, when we look throughout the rest of scripture, I think we see it represents three things. Or at least I'm gonna pick out three. Firstly, it's a place of separation. The threshing floor is a place of separation. It's a place of separation quite literally because that's where the farmers went to separate the grain from the husk, the wheat from the chaff. It was a hive of activity during the harvest and a place of really necessary and important work. I think it's also a place of God's necessary and important work too. In Matthew and in Luke, the two accounts, two of the accounts of the life of Jesus in the New Testament, we hear John the Baptist say of Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The threshing floor is the crucible of God's good and right justice and judgment being enacted. It represents the clearing away of all that is evil and all that is unjust and a gathering in of all that is good and all that is right. Ruth has come to the threshing floor, to the place of separation of set-apartness, seeking justice for her and for Naomi. She's separating from her old self and seeking a new and more hopeful self, united with Boaz under the favor and provision and love of God. It's a place of separation. And secondly, it's a place of revelation and of worship. Let me take you on a whistle-stop tour of the Old Testament. In 2 Chronicles 18, we read about the kings and the prophets prophesying and gathering together, seeking revelation. Where? At the threshing floor. In Deuteronomy and in the book of Numbers, we read about the offerings that can be made to God, offerings of worship. Where did they come from? The threshing floor. In Judges 6, we read of a scared but mighty Gideon, remember him, laying out his fleeces before the Lord, asking for a sign to say, show me, show me that I am hearing correctly from you, show me that it's you that's talking to me, show me that I've got this right. Where does he lay his fleeces out? At the threshing floor. In 2 Samuel 24, in the midst of battle, 
and turmoil and sin, David repents. And he builds an altar to the Lord that costs him greatly. Where does he build it? At the threshing floor. And here it is again. Let's not ignore it. The threshing floor is a place of revelation and of worship, of honoring God. And here Ruth is imploring Boaz to honor the laws of God and provide for her. But she had to go there. She had to go there. I don't think it's insignificant that this very private moment that would have had huge consequences for Naomi and Ruth happens here at the threshing floor. It is a place of revelation and a place of worship and of honoring God. And thirdly, it's a place of abundance where God's provision is unearthed. Joel 2.24 says, The threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. Jeremiah 51.33 says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, the daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor. At the time it is stamped firm, yet in a little while, the time of harvest will come for her. The time of harvest was coming for Ruth. This moment of brave and of bold action was leading her from a place of lack to a place of loving abundance. The threads of God's activity were starting to come together and to me it seems like it was Ruth's bold action of going to the threshing floor that was the catalyst. So what are you in the middle of right now? What is pressing in on all sides? What seeks to consume you? Perhaps you, like Ruth, feel desperate. It may take every ounce of energy that you have, but here is the invitation. Will you come to the threshing floor? Will you come to the place of seeking God's justice and his right right judgment, trusting that we, like Ruth, can leave that place utterly transformed only by the unrivaled presence of God? Will you come to the place of revelation and of worship, seeking only one thing, like the psalmist did in Psalm 27? One thing I ask from the Lord, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. We seek many multitudes of things. We're not wanting for things to seek, right? But only one thing will satisfy. Come to the place of worship and of revelation. Let us be people who stop seeking the revelation from things that are just going to be blown away like chaff on the wind. And instead, Be people who seek fruit that will last. 
Will you come to the place of revelation and of worship? And will you come to the place of God's abundance? Not our idea of abundance, but God's. Will you come to the threshing floor and see what God might unearth for you there? When Ruth was in the middle, she acted boldly. And she also spoke boldly. Her words are of immense importance here. Boaz, we read, awakens startled. The word actually means trembling with fear. He didn't just awake with a little jump in the middle of the night. He awoke terrified. This story challenges so many stereotypes. In this scenario, who is the one more at risk? It's not Boaz. I mean, yes, his reputation might suffer a little, but chances are he's going to recover. Who is the one more at risk here? Ruth, she is the one who has something to fear. But is she depicted as being afraid? No, she is not. This scenario, when we read it, It's a little uncomfortable in places, isn't it? It should read as like a little bit scandalous, a little bit salacious. It's not depicted as either of those things. Neither Ruth nor her situation is presented as we would expect it to be. Ruth is not afraid. At the beginning of this chapter, we read when Naomi was giving her all her instructions, she says, wait, and he will tell you what to do. I could preach a whole other sermon on that, but I won't. Wait, and he will tell you what to do. Is that what happens? No, it's not. Ruth does not wait to be told what to do. She doesn't wait for Boaz. In his fear, he manages to stutter out, who are you? And here, is where Ruth's boldness and tenacity comes into its own. Throughout the past few weeks, Zach mentioned it and so did Dawn, we've learned that Ruth is constantly defined by her heritage. She is referred to over and over and over again as Ruth the Moabite from Moab. She's a Moabite from Moab, just in case you forget She's one of them. She comes with a warning. She comes with a reputation. She comes with a need to prove herself. She's not just Ruth. She's always Ruth the Moabite. How tiring. When Boaz asked who she was, his one question to her, look at what she says. Verse 9, I am Ruth, your servant sign of respect. I am Ruth. When others spoke for her, she was defined by things she couldn't control and things she seemingly couldn't escape. But when she spoke for herself, a very different truth comes out. There is empowerment here and it's welcomed. She says, I am Ruth, your servant, and here's what I want you to do for me, Boaz. She doesn't stop speaking. I wonder what bold speaking might look like for us in the middle. 
Maybe it's boldly asking for help if you need it. Maybe it's boldly praying again. Maybe you haven't done that in a while. Maybe it's boldly sharing your faith, boldly advocating for yourself or for another. Or perhaps like Ruth, it's how we choose to speak about ourselves. The words we use. Because Ruth could have so easily just stuck to the script. I'm Ruth the Moabite. That's what you know me as. That's what I will say I am. But she didn't. And I believe in her own words, she wasn't just claiming an earthly reality. She was claiming a God-given identity. What are the scripts that you stick to? What are the words, the, the descriptions, the characteristics that you speak over yourself? What are you really quick to say? How could you boldly follow Ruth's example here and allow God to rewrite that script a little for you? There is power in our words. When Ruth was in the middle, she acted with boldness and she spoke with boldness. And what she says, as you can imagine, is laced with significance. So let's read that next little section again, just to remind us of the action. She says, spread your cloak over your servant, for you are next of kin. Or in other translations, it says guardian redeemer or kinsman redeemer, which you might have heard before. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. This last instance of your loyalty is better than the first. When he says that, he's referring to the loyalty that, Naomi, that she showed to her mother-in-law, Naomi. You have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask, for all the assembly of my people know that you are a worthy woman. There is some incredibly beautiful writing here, and I want you to understand it. We see tons of mirroring here in this passage to previous passages, little details that we can rush over, but if we look to them, we will see something amazing. Ruth says, spread your cloak over me, which in that culture was a sign of a man in a family taking a widow for his wife. But the word she uses perhaps rang a bell for Boaz because it's the same word that Boaz used to her in chapter two. Don referenced that a couple of weeks ago. It's the word kanaf and it means wings or edge. Boaz said to her, Ruth, may you find refuge under the wings of God. And here she uses that very same word and asks for that refuge, that godly refuge to come in part through him. Boaz's voice comes back to him and what he says to her is really amazing and kind of unexpected. She, he has seen the, the boldness of her actions. He's heard the boldness of her words. Someone else may have rejected that, but he doesn't. He neither rejects, condemns, or criticizes her for who she is in her boldness. In fact, he goes one step further and he honors her. 
he calls her a worthy woman, which when it's more fully translated, means a woman of strength, a mighty woman. And there's another mirror here, because this is exactly the way that Boaz is described in chapter two. The word that's used is heil. He is also a mighty, strong, worthy man. By saying this here, he's calling out something in Ruth. Others may have seen her and would continue to see her as Ruth the Moabite, but he is saying, I see you for who God has made you to be, and not only that, I have met my match in you. I see the might and the valor in your words and your actions, and I will do what you want me to. Now, some might say he's just doing it because he has to, We've read a few times this word kinsman, next of kin, kinsman redeemer, guardian redeemer. It was the name given to the closest man in the family of a woman who had been widowed and it was his responsibility that they would take them as their wife and acquire anything that the husband had, like land or whatever. It's just what was expected, right? That's just the way it worked. That's just what you did. Was it? A law is only as good as its fulfillment right? If it was going to happen anyway, why did she have to ask? If it was going to happen anyway, why did she have to go? Why did she ask the question? I think this can help bring us to the second question. When we are in the middle, where is God? When we are in the middle, what are the questions that we are asking. Debbie Thomas is an American pastor and and writer, and when she's writing about the book of Ruth, she says this, it's, it's quite a long quote, so it's gonna be up in the screen behind me. She says, scholars often point out that God is not overtly present in the book of Ruth. We don't see burning bushes or hear voices thundering from clouds. We only see and hear the divine in quiet choices and actions of the book's all too human characters. In this sense, Ruth is a strikingly contemporary book because isn't it the case that we too primarily experience God's faithfulness in our daily interactions with each other? Isn't divine love made manifest to us in the brave choices and right actions of the people who commit to treating us as their neighbors? Isn't the kingdom of God revealed when we opt to walk in love for each other? even on paths that are hilly, thorny, and arduous. For many of us, this life of faithfulness to Jesus will contain seasons of asking the question, where is God? Where are you? God is not mentioned very much in this book. There's the odd indirect reference, but for the most part, on first read, it could seem like God is pretty silent here, maybe even absent. In other parts of scripture, we see God make himself known in big and dramatic, undeniable ways, the words and the actions of God being front and center. Yet, not here. 
And I find that quite comforting, actually, because God does not often come to me in a pillar of cloud or fire. He does not often speak to me in a thundering voice from the heavens, nor appear to me as an angel by my side at a crucial moment. Not that he can't, not that he can't, but it's not my experience. So is he absent? Do I have a lesser experience of the presence and the person of God? I don't think so. In this story, we do not hear God mentioned much, but we do see him at work. We see his character brightly on display through these characters in this story. We see his rule and his reign. We see his kingdom on display through the lives and the words and the actions of these ordinary people. And so as we draw to a close, I want to come back to that phrase, kinsman redeemer. This is how Boaz is described here. And as we know, that has tons of significance for Naomi and for Ruth in this moment of their lives. But like so many other things in this book, it has a wider significance. And we'll learn more about God's redemption at work, both um, in the next few weeks. But as those that are still in the middle, As those still in the middle, we need to remember the bit of the story that we do have. Because we have a redeemer too, right? We have a redeemer too. And we are invited to the threshing floor, not forced to come. Open invitation. We are invited to the threshing floor to meet with our Redeemer, Jesus, to allow him to spread his wings of refuge over us, to rest in his redeeming work, and to see him at work in the people and the places around us to trust him even in the silence and to ask the question, where are you, God? When I can't see you, when I can't hear you, where are you, God? I think the asking is part of the seeking and like Ruth, we don't need to fear the seeking because it's there that God is found. And so I want to finish by reading a poem over us as a prayer. It's by um, Edwina Gately, and it's called Silent God. So let me read this over us as a prayer. This is my prayer, that though I may not see, I may be aware of the silent God who stands by me, that though I may not feel I may be aware of the mighty love which doggedly follows me. 
that though I may not respond, I may be aware that God, my silent, mighty God, waits each day, quietly, hopefully, persistently, waits each day and through each night for me, for me alone.